this was one of those tracks that it just like it transcended generations. You listened to it. Your kid brother listened to it. Your older sister probably listened to it. And your mother definitely owned the album. It's one of those. And all that is not too bad, considering this is a song that John Bon Jovi just thought was okay. That song goes something like this. Tommy used to work on the docks. Union's been on strike. He's down on his luck. It's tough. Oh, so tough. Come on, guys. Nobody? Gina? <laughs> no, nah, nah, we're going to let you carry this one all yourself. But you got, bankrupt. you got, you can put that on my compilation uh, CD. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios and on Pod TV Live, it's another all-new Dueling Decades. The adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back. I am Mark James, and this week we have an outstanding October duel where I will be competing with the best of October 1976 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, bring in the best from the 90s. Say hello to Man Crush. What's up? I have October 1986. It's almost Halloween, and this is the only getup that I could find in my house. <laughs> I'm not even sure what the fuck I am supposed to be, uh, but it's nice to see everybody again. I feel like uh, it's been a month or so since we were recorded, and you might realize that if you're seeing the reruns. I hope people are uh, enjoying that. But yeah, October 1986 is what I'm bringing to the table today. Also joining the show, representing the 80s, please welcome back the media king of the north, Joe Finley. Thank you so much. First off, uh, Man Crush, you are definitely Josh Brolin from the Goonies. Uh, and <laughs> and I did a thing today. So I had a beard for the longest time and I shaved it today. And this all this redness is what I've been left with. So you're going to have to deal with that, looking at it very up close, too, in a way that um, I can't tell. It's going to be oh, looks all right. Oh, no, no, no. It looks like a hideous mess. I look like Freddy Krueger. And we're going to try and win with October of 1996 in the meantime. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So all rise for this week's guest judge who has instructed us that he is only to be known as Mr. Body. Hey, how's it going, guys? I'm Mr. Body, uh, Man Crush, Mark, Joe. Very nice to meet you guys. Very excited to play for first time. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Nice mustache. Thank you. Oh, Thank you. Put a lot of work into that. Yeah, I've been growing it for years. Solid. Do you coach a little league team? Uh, I I used to coach many little league teams, and but now I'm no longer allowed near schools. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under dueling decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five dueling decades categories: movies, television, music, 
news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we'll go to a final wildcard round. Remember, duelers, to review the show. Listen, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to Mr. Body for the coin toss to see who goes first in this game. This week it'll be between Man Crush and Joe Finley. Ooh. Oh, guys, you know something? I'm very sorry. You know, I'm a little bit unprepared at being at my, my first time on the show. Let me get something to flip here. <laughs> Even runs creepy. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I have a copy of... Uh, ghostbusters on vhs and i think we're gonna flip that being as it's it's october joe you you can call it. all right let's go with heads all right let's flip it up in the air here one two three. Oh, but we we have tails all right man crush you win the coin toss you get control of the board and you get to select our first category i hate going with movies first but we're gonna do that we go movies first and we're going to go to uh, October 24th of 1986. And here, this is one of those horror movies that anyone growing up in the 80s most likely saw on cable. Uh, this particular movie was played countless, countless times during my youth on late night HBO. And it gained that cult status that we always talk about at the video store. So we're not talking about like a huge juggernaut right here. However, when I decided to pick this movie, I thought I had watched this pretty recently. I saw the box. And I was like, yeah, I've seen this like maybe last year or whatever. But I was pleasantly surprised that I had. And tell me it's not awesome. And I think we talked about this on the show before to rewatch a movie that you've seen years and years ago and you think you know it. And everything feels brand new again when you watch it, like every scene, you forgot everything. And that is exactly what happened with this movie. So it was really good. It was fun to watch this one. And if and if you're interested in actually seeing this movie, do not go over to all the paid services because none of them have it, which I was actually a little surprised about. Uh, on a whim, I decided to go over to YouTube and it's on that shit for free. So once you find out what this movie is, you can go to YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube for nothing. Uh, so at the box office movie, it, like I said before, it was not a juggernaut to can just about $7 million at the box office, roughly $18 million in 2021 on a $3.5 million budget, which is not amazing, but this is like a pretty run-of-the-mill uh, DEG movie, which is, of course, D. Laurinaitis Entertainment. Uh, it's kind of, you think of it this way, it's, it's almost like the break-in of horror movies. Because just like Canon Films, DG does not shy away from pop culture, right? And with heavy metal like gaining in popularity through the mid 80s, early 80s, like just building up, why the hell not? Let's mix heavy metal with horror, which is, it's kind of like, listen, parody in the 80s was just amazing. And I talked about this several months ago when I had the movie Vice Versa. And I talked about like the run of like all the body swap movies, right? That we had during that period. Well, this parody is exactly the same because we got tons of these movies during that same stretch. And you had such classics as like uh, Rocktober Blood, Blood Tracks, 
Hard Rock Zombies, Rock and Roll Nightmare, Slumber Party Massacre 2. How can you forget that one? Slaughterhouse Rock. And uh, and a movie called Shock Em Dead. And I'm sure there were like a ton of other ones, but those are a few to get you going. So if you're in the mood for the heavier side of rock and roll and actors that don't really fit their parts whatsoever, you got Skippy from Family Ties playing a metalhead hero. All right. Which, uh, if you didn't know this one, Ragman, his character, was almost played by Keanu Reeves. Can you imagine that? Wow. Uh, you had Gene Simmons as a generous radio DJ. Uh, that, that'll happen. <laughs> and then you had uh, an ad-libbing Ozzy Osbourne playing a televangelist. You had a fucking gymnast playing a metal demigod. And then you had Doug Savant of Melrose Place. And also, uh, he was also Michael J. Fox's team member on uh, Teen Wolf, on the basketball team there. He was a school bully. In this one, you had uh, Vic Rattlehead ripoffs. You back mask your records to summon evil. You had hot moms and leotards. Which I was a little surprised about when I was watching that scene, because at first I thought it was uh, the girl that liked uh, Ragman. It was actually I had to rewind it, and watch it again. It's his mom. Ew. So good stuff there. And uh, if you like Walkman orgasms, which you get in this movie, then go out and grab yourself a copy of Trick or treat not trick or treat totally different movie actually there is another trick or treat i think came out in 1982 but this one right here came out in 1986 october 24th 1986 to be exact trick or treat wow all right joe finley what did you bring for the movies round okay well let me actually bring myself back up i'm forgetting how to do this after so long um I take you to October eighth, October eighteenth, nineteen ninety six, and I take you to a movie that was written by uh, a then unknown fella who he wrote an autobiographical, semi autobiographical movie about a breakup he had he had and a couple of friends who took him out on the town to cheer him up. Uh, he ended up writing this movie and then trying to get his friends to star as his friends in the movie. Uh, studios weren't having it, so they ended up funding this movie themselves and i know it sounds a lot like a goodwill hunting but it is not this movie is so money it didn't even know it i give you swingers (laughs) so john favreau did write this movie and it is a a semi-autobiographical story and vince vaughn and ron livingston were his friends who took him out on the town uh when they tried to uh get this movie made initially like i said nobody wanted it nobody wanted to cast those guys they wanted to go and get stars and all this doug lyman directing his first movie they didn't really want to trust him with brand new people and all that so they said screw it we'll go out and we'll do it ourselves they raised two hundred thousand dollars and made the movie ended up making 4.6 million dollars which i mean from a a standpoint of you know just like profit margins that was pretty fantastic uh steven spielberg actually hired vince vaughn from seeing uh scenes from the movie when they were trying to get him to approve uh the jaws theme for a portion uh so yeah it was a pretty big deal it was a breakout for a lot of people uh and then uh john favreau got uh, several uh film critics awards for his work in the movie and doug lyman won an mtv movie award for best new director so october october 18th swingers you're so fucking money and you don't even know it that's what i'm saying i keep trying to be money at the very least what's up fucking house of pain 
All right, guys. So my movie this week starts off with a scene of old-timey gangsters barging in and shooting up a rival crew that consists of a man that has no eyes, the wolf man, and one gentleman who gets his head blown off only to spout out a fountain of rainbow-colored blood from his neck. So for my movie selection this week, we're going to go straight to the official press release for this film. The long wait is over. Led Zeppelin comes into the cinema in The Song Remains the Same, the motion picture record of the group's explosive 1973 Madison Square Garden performances. The Song Remains the Same captures the being and essence of four people who make up Led Zeppelin, the most exciting and durable of rock groups. The Warner Brothers movie has taken three painstakingly precise years to reach the cinemas. Incorporating live concert footage, fantasy sequences, backstage glimpses of the band, and a personal view of them at ease at home. The song remains the same as a rare human look at four rock musicians. Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, and John Bonzo Bonham. The film was their idea, their project totally, and it's their special way of giving their millions of friends what they have always been clamoring for a personal and private tour of Led Zeppelin. The movie opens October 20th in New York, and despite the production woes of the film and all of that being a disaster with reshoots and the band felt that some of the performances were subpar, this movie has actually become legendary with Led Zepp fans over the years and was a late-night cult favorite in movie houses for the rest of the 70s. So in the film, the band jams out some of their classics like Rock and Roll, Celebration Day, The Song Remains the Same, Rain Song, you get a 26-minute Dazed and Confused, 29 minutes on the album, No Quarter, Stairway to Heaven, Moby Dick, and Whole Lot of Love. Uh, The Song Remains the Same is live on the silver screen October 20th. 1976 if you've never checked this out and you're not a led zeppelin fan watch it you will be fantastic movie all right let's kick it over to mr body who's gonna judge his first round here on dueling decades the movies round all right well you know hopefully i do this right guys you know forgive me uh i i have to say first right off the bat um I, I, I don't want to pick any of you because I usually prefer to watch movies that begin with the letter Y. <laughs> if you're wondering, uh, well, why not? Uh, but so uh, I guess we'll we'll go to Mark first, uh, who possibly went with uh, the. Uh, I mean, who the hell's going to the movies to see this? Uh, but uh, a lot of people. Yeah. Well, they. That's uh, boring. I like a. Sto- <laughs> yeah, I, I like a story. You know, and uh, and I usually only uh, listen to Led Zeppelin when I'm making out. Uh, but yeah, so automatic uh, disqualification there. Uh, but uh, then uh, I think uh, let's move over to Joe, who went with, uh, you know, possibly the most, uh, you know, obscene of choices. How, how long is this movie? 93 minutes. About 93 minutes. 93 I, minutes. I, Have, I mean, everybody knows what swingers look like. They're usually, you know in their late fifties overweight looking at stretch marks and varicose veins. False advertising. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, I, I mean, uh, God, I hope this was, uh, at at least, uh, children were not allowed to come go see this. Uh, but, 
Then uh, I guess we'll move over over to Man Crush here, uh, who, who's got a Trick or Treat, which uh, interestingly enough, this is a this is a film that I that I once owned on uh, owned on video cassette. Wish I still had it because I believe it is worth a little bit at the moment. Uh, oh. And I mean, I'm just going to come out and say it. I I I totally jerked off to the um, <laughs> the Walkman orgasm. I mean, yeah, I, I recall that. <laughs> yep, that happened. Did you have the mustache then? No, but oddly enough, later on that day, I did take a mustache ride. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that was right around the time I was banned from Little League. <laughs> but yeah, if I'm going to choose a winner of the movie round, all things considered, especially so that nobody nobody chose anything with the, with the letter Y, uh, I'm going to go with Man Crush with Trick or Treat. All right. All right, Man Crush, you pick up our first point, but more importantly, you take control of the board and get to select our next category. All right, let's go hot products here. I know that's always a popular one, and I'm hoping that since you guys also had October, you went the same route as I did, because uh, this is something that I usually do when we do October. Uh, I always find this one interesting. Every time I have October, I think uh, the last time I had it, it must have been in the 70s because I, I remember it being uh, Kiss costumes were the most popular costume of the year. So I think that was actually last year I had that. Well, now we're off to 1986, and we have some new hot costumes for the holiday season. So here's a story from 1986, October of 1986 to be exact, about which costumes for Halloween were the hottest. Uh, anybody want to guess before I start this? So I think that might be a fun thing to do. Human Torch? You said the hottest. Doc Brown. No. What about you, Mr. Body? What do you think? Before I even say anything. This is 1986. Male and female, by the way. Michael Jackson? No. No, it was not Michael Jackson. <laughs> Mr. T. Uh, nope. It's not a character. All right. Let me just read the Nancy Reagan. Gary Coleman. <laughs> All right. Shut up, everybody. Here we go. All right. So... I won't even give you the title because I'll give everything away, but this is a title or this is an uh, article out of San Diego, and it begins like this. The Ninja Warrior is once again the overwhelming favorite for male Halloween costume this year, while a sexy witch is the top choice for girls and women, according to a uh, costume maker. The buying patterns are bearing out planning decisions made a year ago, which I found this kind of interesting that they do this a year in advance by National Theme Productions, the nation's largest designer retailer of adult Halloween costumes, which works all year just for a couple days in scary October. And I quote here, they say, we try to make sure we know what is happening in the world in general, said Bonnie Kerr Gagan. Oh, Gagnon? Gagnon. I like Gagnon better. So we're going to go Bonnie Kerr Gagnon. She's got a hyphenated last name. She said the, uh, she's actually the company's uh, division merchandise manager. Uh, the brief Halloween season leaves no room for large orders based on fads, Miss Kerr Gagnon said. A costume design that doesn't sell sits in our warehouse and there is no markdown period in Halloween sales, which is pretty spot on. Uh, another quote she says, and this is great. She says, I learned my lesson on Boy George. I tried to do a Boy George concert or concert costume a couple of years ago. It had braids and a hat with ribbons going through it. Then he cut his hair off. I could have killed him. I had about 4,000 braided wigs connected to hats that I had to take the braids off to try to reuse for something else. For, for specific imitations, 
The company stocks 200 accessories and it's 850 seasonal shops set up in major department stores across the nation. You can create the female rock star Madonna, but you can't buy her ready-made. But yeah, I give you uh, 1986 ninjas for the second year in a row and sexy witches, which I never really saw a sexy witch. Yeah, it's always on the top of the list, but you never really see them. Sexy, yes, yeah, sexy, like a nurse, you know, maybe like a, like a vampire, but a witch. Witches are gross. I've never seen an unsexy witch. Kathy Najimy and Hocus Pocus gets my crank rolling. Uh, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, what did you bring for the hot products round? Well, I brought costumes, but not Halloween costumes. I brought horror, but not a horror movie. October 20th, 1996, I bring you WWE's In Your House Buried Alive. So this was the 11th uh, In Your House pay-per-view. This was just at the beginning of the not having just kind of the main four throughout the year. They started adding one a month, and it was a shrunk-down, cheaper pay-per-view for people to watch. Uh, but this one actually had a lot of firsts in it. It was actually the very first pay-per-view ever where the champion didn't fight. So they've had ones where the championship wasn't on the line. Like, even in WrestleMania 1, Hogan was on a tag team, and so the championship wasn't up, up for grabs. But this time, Shawn Michaels, who was the champion, was not on the card. He fought a dark match against Goldust, uh, which actually came on at the after- mm. The pay-per-view was over, but he did not fight during the card. Uh, also, it was the debut of Stone Cold Steve's, Steve Austin's Hell Frozen Over a theme song with the shattered glass and all that. That was the first time you ever heard that music when he went against Hunter Hearst Helmsley, his pre-Triple H days. And this was also the first ever Buried Alive match with The Undertaker facing off against Mankind with his new manager, Paul Bearer, after Paul Bearer turned his back on The Undertaker in a previous pay-per-view, which I believe was SummerSlam. And that would have been, what, the uh, Boiler Room Brawl. Uh, So there was a lot of that going on. Uh, That was the main event, and it ended with The Undertaker being buried alive when a number, when pretty much everybody who was at the pay-per-view ran out and helped Mankind bury him. The other matches in the pay-per-view included Owen Hart and British Bulldog taking on the Smoking Guns and winning for the uh, to defend the Tag Team Championships. Mark Merrow defeated Goldust, who I did say was in a dark match, so he did double duty that day. And Psycho Sid defeated Vader to become the number one contender for the championship to face off against uh, Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series. So that's what I give you for the first time ever, Buried Alive, October 20th, 1996. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Uh, Much like Man Crush, it's Halloween time. We need a good costume. So let's go over to the pages of the Star Gazette out of Elmira, New York, October 28th, 1976, where the headline reads, Fawns tops Halloween costumes. If the fawn seems like he's getting more than his fair share of trick-or-treat candy, don't worry. There'll be a lot of children impersonating him this year. Area stores have reported that costumes resembling well-known television characters this year are the most popular choice for trick-or-treaters. Traditional characters such as Dracula and Frankenstein probably will be taking the backseat to other television personalities as well. Everybody's buying TV characters. Barry Hochuk, assistant manager at Kmart, said, The Fonz would have been the biggest, but we can't get any. So SWAT is number two. 
SWAT stands for Special Weapons and Tactics, a television show about policemen. So my hot product is the 1976 Ben Cooper Fonz costume. The costume includes the signature flame-retardant plastic cape and Ben Cooper mask, which kind of looks more like a cross between Ronald Reagan and Walter Matthau than it does the Fonz. So if you could find one, you could pick one up for Halloween. Prices range from about $1.99 to $2.49 or about $27 today. And if you want one today, you can still find them on eBay, but you're going to pay about $75 to $100. So get your costume and say, hey, give me all your candy. With the Fonz in his Halloween costume by Ben Cooper, October 1976. Now, now, guys, if the Fonz actually went trick-or-treating, do you think he could just walk up to the house, hit the side of the house, and candy would fly out? And pop out of the mail slot. <laughs> are we supposed to take uh, Ben Cooper's word that those are really flame-retardant? I don't buy that. To a point, they're flame-retardant. Let's order one. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's try it on a live stream. We lit that kid on fire. It just melted, <laughs> man. <laughs> it was just a test, man. <laughs> Just trying to see if the claim is real. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what our guest judge for this episode, Mr. Body, has to say about the hot products round. Well, you know, fellas, I feel like I'm settling in here. I'm starting to get the swing of things. Uh, I guess uh, let's go over to Man Crush here with his uh, ninja costume, which, uh, you know, I've been listening to a few episodes episodes of the show, and... Uh, you uh, definitely have a long streak of explaining things for way too long. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, what's really impressive here is what Mark brings with the Fonz costume, because I can only imagine how popular this must have been. I mean, who doesn't love Happy Days? And the Fonz was everywhere. There was yeah. Fonz pinball machines. I don't know if there really was, but there probably was. Uh so I'm, you know, I'm not going to totally discount that one just yet, but then let's swing it over to Joe here with the uh, first uh, Buried Alive. Uh, we got Steve Austin, first time with the the, the well-known theme song, uh, first Buried Alive match. Um, what's impressive here is that I am not the biggest wrestling fan post-1993, 94, but I am well aware of this, which goes to show you just the sheer magnitude of, of the event, but really, I don't know where to go here because on one hand, you've got the guy who jumped a shark, and then you've got and then you've got this so over over here with the, with the wrestling. Yeah, I'm quite perplexed. I don't know really know what to do here. Ninjas. Yeah, you know the, 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 there is the ninja stars, which I mean those are fun to play with. You know, I think when 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 all said and done, what was the thing that lasted the longest? And to be quite honest with you, I don't see. Channel 11 at 6 o'clock in the evening ever rerunning uh, this uh, Buried Alive match. But somewhere, any time of the day throughout the world, you will find an episode of Happy Days on some channel. So I'm going to go with the Fonz costume. All right. Hey. So that means I pick up a point. I tie this game up with Man Crush. I get to select the next round going into our final one-point round. And gentlemen, that's going to be the music round. All right, so I'll start this one off. Uh, a reviewer from Rolling Stone stated that this album was one of the best from 1976 and that this singer kind of sounds like Rod Stewart and writes lyrics like Bruce Springsteen. 
Released by Capitol Records, October 22nd, 1976. I give you Night Moves by Bob Seger in the Silver Bullet Band. Perfect band in time for Halloween. Uh, a review in The Independent out of Long Beach, California says, To know Bob Seger is evidently to love him. He is a cult figure at best in most of the country. Seeger attracted some 80,000 to a concert he held last spring in his hometown of Detroit. His records consistently sell in Michigan, but nowhere else. The narrow base of acceptance is hard to understand because Seeger is a model mainstream rocker. And then the article goes on to say that the most important thing about Night Moves, it is a record for adults. Like most of today's rockers, Seeger is over 30 years old. Unlike most of them, he actually admits it. The article closes with Night Moves in the accompanying national tour may well be Seeger's last chance to be more than just a regional favorite. He certainly deserves to make it. Oh, and make it he did. This hardworking rocker's ninth studio album, it, it was his first to be certified platinum, and since then, it's sold six times platinum. The album ended up producing three singles, Rock and Roll Never Forgets, and two top 40 hits in The Sweet Sultry Sounds of the Aforementioned Night Moves and The Slow Grooves of Main Street. So if we look down at the rest of the track listing for this one, we get the jukebox favorite and my personal favorite, Fire Down Below, followed by Sunburst and then Sunspot Baby, which is a song that kind of sounds like Randy Newman went to a bar, drank too much whiskey, and then sat in with the blues band. So the album kind of rounds out with Come to Papa, Ship of Fools, and the rockin' version of Mary Lou. So slap on some blue-collar rock with Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, October 22nd, 1976. I'm pretty sure that whole album is about fucking. I think so. It really is. And it's fantastic. Start to finish. It's just a great album. I think I listened to it three times today alone start to finish it just flows fire down below is about a chick with red hair <laughs> what was the other one you said <laughs> right after that oh you got come to papa uh, also about a chick with red hair a ship of fools that's about fucking on a cruise ship <laughs> <laughs> night moves about fucking in your car right main street well, it's about fucking, fucking on, on main, main street, street. <laughs> yeah. you didn't get yeah. too clever there Sunburst, well... That's a chick with red hair. Yeah. <laughs> Strawberry blonde. Sunburst is actually when you get a facial in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing that to the table. Thank God. Only happens in the sunshine state. <laughs> All right, man crush. What did you bring for the music round? All right, so I could have went with some albums here, but I decided to go with a single. So I wouldn't say that uh, this song put this band on the map but they had a couple of hits already previously but i think this track actually cemented them as like real players in the game and this was this was one of those tracks that it just like it transcended generations you listened to it your kid brother listened to it your older sister probably listened to it and your mother definitely owned the album it's one of those and no i'm not talking about the uh any track from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, because that would have been 1987. But the phenomenon is pretty close to this one, I would say. And arguably, this is probably the band's most popular song, if not their best song. It depends on who you ask. But the single alone, it went three times platinum in the U.S. Just a single. 
Overall, the single sold about 5 million copies worldwide. The album from which it hailed sold about 12 million copies in the U.S. alone. So there's fairly good evidence there that this single probably attributed to a lot of those numbers. The single, it went number one on the Billboard Hot 100, stayed there for four weeks. And all of that is not too bad, considering this is a song that John Bon Jovi just thought was okay when they first mixed it. And uh, when he said that to Richie Sambora, Richie Sambora called John an idiot. This is actually an interview. He, he said this. Uh, he's, he was like, I called John an idiot for not seeing the potential that this song had when they penned it. And Bon Jovi basically just said that uh, the day that they wrote the song, the band just wasn't feeling very creative. It was just like a mad day. They went in the studio to do some shit and uh, they got into a conversation. And it led to this song and it was just kind of whatever. But uh, that song goes something like this. Tommy used to work on the docks. Union's been on strike. He's down on his luck. It's tough. Oh, so tough. Come on, guys. Nobody? <laughs> Gina? No, no, we're going to let you carry this one all yourself. But you got, you got, you can put that on my compilation uh, CD. But yeah, we're talking about Living on a Prayer right here by Bon Jovi. And honestly, I don't know if you guys remember this, but uh, right after 9-11, remember they had the uh, the Heroes tribute? Like It was like a week later, 10 days or whatever. They did an acoustic version of Living on a Prayer during that, and I, I swear to you, I wept like a baby. So go over to YouTube, just go and watch that. It's beautiful. It was like candles behind them and shit. Whew, it's a tearjerker. But yeah, Living on a Prayer, baby. <laughs> all right joe finley what did you bring for the music round all right well we're slightly more than halfway there in the show <laughs> so uh let's talk about another album let's talk about we right at the beginning of the month october 1st 1996 uh this is the band's second album uh, i did some really great things for them it gave you uh such wonderful uh song titles as stink fist eulogy 46 and 2 Hooker with a Penis, and the title track by Tool, Enema. So like I said, it was their uh, second album. It went triple platinum. Uh, it debuted at number two on the Billboard 200. That was its peak. And won a Grammy for Best Metal Performance for the title track. Uh, it was named the sixth most, most influential album of all time by the British metal magazine Kerrang! And it was number 18 on Rolling Stone's uh, 100 Greatest Metal Albums of All Time. Uh, this is an album that I still very regularly listen to. It is... I've, I've always got this one going. And every time it goes, it hits just as hard. It's like Tool albums just do that to me as it is. Uh, you know, if you want to listen to a single song for 45 minutes, it seems uh, they're the ones to go to. And, but every single time, whenever they put out an album, you know, you're not getting, you know, they're, they're not going light on you. So uh, that's my entry for this one is tools. Anima October 1st. <laughs> that's your entry. Yeah. <laughs> the entry into tools. Enema. It's sloppy. That's why I have the stink fest. <laughs> All right, Mr. Body. Let's hear what your verdict is on the music round. Well, three different choices and so many different thoughts I have here. Um, I don't know where to really begin. I mean, I have the least experience with Tool, 
but I do recognize uh, that they are, uh, you know, a semi-popular band. And then, you know, Mark, you just uh, hit me with Bob Seeger, who plays, you know, in every Friday at the Menopause Lounge. Um, <laughs> you have to mention the hair from that album. Is that is it that album cover with the hair? Yeah, oh, it is. Man, it's and and like the so dirtbag mustache and goatee that's like half filled in. It's so good. Yeah, it's fantastic. I wish I could grow that mop. Well, yeah, I, you know, I don't know exactly where to go here because. I feel like because I don't really listen to Tool, I'm not giving them like a fair shake. But at the same time, I mean, Mark did bring us a record here that's that's all about. Uh, well, I guess you know if you really think about it, you know, Mark and Joe bro- both brought something <laughs> that uh, all about coitus. Yeah, yeah, all about uh, doing something in a tight, warm place. <laughs> but at the but. Also, you know, you've got Man Crush here with Living on a Prayer. And, I mean, who doesn't uh, who doesn't uh, hate that song? Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, you know what? I think, I think I'm going to have to go against my better judgment here and give this one to Joe with Tool. Ooh. Do you need me to sing the rest of the song? You know what? That might help you. I don't know if you want to... <laughs> I'll skip. I'll give Joe the point. I'll go with a three-way tie. All right, Joe Finley, you pick up the point. The game's tied three ways. We're heading into our first two-point round. Where are we going next? Oh, it's a tough one, and I don't know why it's a tough one, because it really doesn't matter. They're two two-point rounds, so we can do this in any order we want. Uh, but I think I'm going to go with the news round. All right. Okay. So... I bring you to October 4th, 1996. Uh, The baseball playoffs are uh, underway, Uh, but something just prior to the playoffs had happened. Uh, Former Blue Jay, give it up, Roberto Alomar, spit in an umpire's face. And uh, anybody who really knew him uh, when he was a Blue Jay, he did those old McCain commercials where he has like, catch the taste, and that's all I can think about when he spit in the mouth of of an umpire. Uh, But he gets suspended for five games, but the uh, GM decides that he's not going to enforce that suspension until after the playoffs because the Orioles, the team for which he was playing, made the playoffs. And he was like, oh, he's not going to miss any playoff games. He doesn't have to worry about this until next season. So the umpires walked out. And uh, this became a huge deal. And the uh, MLB was scrambling. Uh, the There was a union vote to for the... Uh, umpires to strike and on october 4th 1996 a u.s district judge barred the mlb umpires from striking during the postseason they deemed that uh while he totally understood that how upset they were at the uh, ruling and all those things that it was not a sufficient term it was not sufficient uh to break their terms of employment uh in their contract so uh they got ordered back they said they would come back the head of their union said that as they are trying to project themselves as a point of authority they wouldn't uh balk at the authority of the judge so they did return back uh, that was judge edwin edmund ludwig who filed that injunction and the uh mlb was fully prepared 
to uh, move on without these umpires. They had already uh, gathered a group of replacement umpires who were both amateur and college umps and were ready to go on. But uh, the judge determined that it would have been too detrimental to the teams to bring in a bunch of replacement umpires right in the midst of the postseason. So October 4th, 1996, the judge stops an umpire strike from messing up the World Series. All right, Man Crush, what did you bring this week for the news round? All right, let's go. Uh, this is kind of two dates, but we'll start with one date and I'll add the other one. So we got October 25th and 27th of 1986. Two dates. We'll start with the first one first. And I treasure this one with every fiber of my being. As I've mentioned on this show countless times, I am a miserable Jets fan, but the misery doesn't end there. I'm also a Mets fan, a Knicks fan. And a Rangers fan. So over the course of my 43 years, I've witnessed close to nothing. I've witnessed <laughs> my friends uh, just rejoice year after year, go to championship parades, and just feel good about their squads year in, year out. I never, I never had that. And I'm in New York, for Christ's sake. So you know damn well I've had and seen Yankees fans going ballistic for years. Since I was born, the Yankees have won six World Series. The Giants have won four Super Bowls. The Devils have won three Stanley Cups. Meanwhile, I'm basically clinging on to two championships with four teams. But this is technically the one that I'm attached to. The other one, 1994 with the Rangers. I wasn't really that big into hockey yet in 94. I don't really count that one as being part of my lineage, but this one I do. And I, I owe all the excitement to something that occurred on that night, October 25th, 1986, because uh, in typical Mets fashion, nothing is done easily. Nothing. So after losing game five in Boston, the Mets were down three games to two. The backs are up against the wall. One more loss and they're done. Bobby Ojeda takes the mound that night. And right off the bat, he gives up two quick runs. First two innings, 2 nothing. But the Mets, they managed to tie the game in the fifth inning. Boston goes back up 3-2 to two in the seventh inning. Then the Mets were able to tie it in the eighth inning, 3-3, three, three, right? And I don't know if you guys watch this game, but like I remember it like it was fucking yesterday. I literally remember sitting on the floor in my bedroom watching this game with clenched fists, anxiety-ridden over the shit. 3-3, three, three, we're headed to extra innings, right? Like I said, nothing is ever easy with the Mets. So 10th inning, top of the 10th, Rick Aguilera comes in. Gives up a home run to Dave Henderson right off the bat. They go down 4-3. to three. Wade Boggs hits a double. They drive him home. 5-3. Now we're going to the bottom of the 10th. The season hinges on three outs. And I want to say that at that point, the, the Mets in 86 had like 104 wins. Or something like that. I followed that team like it was like my fucking family. All right. So the bottom of the 10th starts. You got Calvin Chiraldi. He's on the mound for Boston. And he immediately gets the first two outs against arguably the two best Mets hitters. You got Howard Johnson and Keith Hernandez. I believe they both flew out. Right. So now the Mets are down to their last out. The scoreboard at Shea Stadium mistakenly flashes. Congratulations to the 1986 World champions, the Boston Red Sox, right? Goes up, comes down, and up walks Gary Carter, the kid 
kid comes to the plate and he drops a single, weak single into left, right? Mets are still alive. Tying run comes up to the plate. And like I said before, this is the fucking Mets, right? So David Johnson, this is going to be a long one. I don't give a fuck. David Johnson, he announces that uh, <laughs> Kevin Mitchell is going to come off the bench to pinch hit for Rick Aguilera. It was in this slot, it was supposed to be Daryl Strawberry, but they did double switch the inning before. So now it's Rick Aguilera's turn at bat. So they, they go to put Kevin Mitchell in, right? Well, Kevin Mitchell is not in the fucking dugout because after the first two outs of the inning, this motherfucker like ditched off to the clubhouse because he's like, I'm taking a shower. Fuck it. So somebody runs into the clubhouse. They go get Mitchell. He throws his jersey back on. He grabs the bat cold and goes into the warm-up circle. And he's just, this is only the Mets. Shit like this happens to you. So he gets in the warm-up circle. And, you know, he does like some stretches. Fucking somehow, Mitchell, who was one for five in the 1986 World Series up to this point, manages, I think it was on the second pitch, just drives a line drive into center. So now the tying runs are both on base. And you have Ray Knight comes up to the bait, comes up to the plate. And right off the bat, Shiraldi gets two quick strikes, right? So they're down to their last strike. This is the Mets. People are ready. Like, I don't know if you guys remember this. I do. Fucking, I can picture it. It looked like toilet paper is being thrown onto the field, but people are just tossing streamers onto the field behind hold plate. All this shit's coming down. People just think it's over, right? And Ray Knight just corkscrews a pitch right over the second baseman into the center field. And the kid scores from second. So now it's five to four. I think at the time, I think Kevin Mitchell moves all the way to third. So uh, they take out Chiraldi. They put in Bob Stanley. And then Mookie Wilson steps to the plate. And I won't even go through the whole thing. Let's just, we'll skip forward to two balls and two strikes, right? Stanley throws a pitch in the dirt. And that, like, again, it's just fucking Wilson steps back from the plate, waves Mitchell in. Mitchell scores 5-5, right? This at-bat goes for 10 fucking pitches. Then Mookie hits one. And it doesn't even look like a good hit. Just hits it right down the first baseline. Bill Buckner's there. Ball goes right between his legs. They score. Ray Knight trots home. 6-5. They win the game. This place, I've never seen to this day any New York stadium anywhere close to that. It was insane. Like, everyone was on their feet. There was not one person sitting down in this entire place. There's streamers getting thrown. There's sign. When was the last time you saw a sign at a baseball game? Like people with signs and shit. Just fucking crazy. So th- they tie it. It's three games apiece. Two days later, this is the 27th, of course, the Mets end up beating the Red Sox 8-5, to five, and they win their second World Series and the only real major championship that I have ever gotten to celebrate in my entire life. So I give you the whole Mookie Wilson uh, game six thing, and then uh, game seven, win it. The Mets! <laughs> and Doc Gooden was 0-3 in that series. He had actually lost game five. So it was pretty wild that like everyone else just stepped up. Sorry, I had to make that one long. It 
Feel it from the heart. I was kind of hoping you were going to make it long enough to cry. <laughs> well, we actually won that one, so it was uh, it was good. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, you knew it had to happen at some point in this game. It's time to get dark. Oh. So let's go over to the journal out of Meridian, Connecticut, October 6, 1976, where an article reads, an 18-year-old man said he cut off his hand because he got into a fight with the devil. Then he walked the streets with a Bible and to preach the word of God, said the policeman who found him. Robert Hudel of Stonington was in stable condition Tuesday night in, at a Hartford hospital following surgery that replaced his right hand. But a spokesperson said it was a little too early to tell if the operation would be successful. Patrolman Frank Canella said he found Hudel Monday night as the young man was walking on Route 190, carrying a Bible under one arm and bleeding heavily. I asked him why he did it, and he said, If your right hand offends thee, cut it off and toss it away. Canna said Hudel made a tourniquet for his arm before cutting off his hand with a razor blade. He just had to get rid of the hand. He said he got into a fight with the devil. The patrolman added that Hudel and an off-duty officer and fireman uh, stopped the car scene. They made him a better tourniquet, and then they retrieved the hand, which they found in a wastebasket. Hudel told the firemen, this is what the Lord did, he said. As they drove to the hospital, Hudel, Hudel just read the Bible, and he really didn't say anything. And then halfway through the ride, he stopped and he said, boy, that took a lot of guts cutting that off. When, when the emergency room doctors told Hudel and his parents what Hudel had done, his parents said he had never done anything like that before. And uh, Hudel just responded back again. Well, I had a fight with the devil. So that's what I got for my news story. Guy gets into a fight with the devil, cuts off his own hand with a razor blade in October 1976. Well, thank God he was in Haddonfield, where they have the best trauma surgeons to reattach those. Yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> All right, let's toss this over to Mr. Body for his ruling on the news round. Well, I got to tell you guys, you you know, you should really give yourselves a round of applause because you, you just keep, uh, you find the best stuff. I mean, you know, Mark's got his idle hand story here, which is very, you know, seasonal. I, li I like it. Devil and October seem to go together. And then Joe, you know, I can cer certainly sympathize here. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, my wife also staged a walkout for some spit-like substance in her face. Uh, but... <clears throat> Uh, you know, I'm not going to bullshit anybody here. I'm a, I'm, I'm a Met fan. And uh, 1986, Game 7, I got to sit on my father's lap Ooh. and watch the Mets win the World Series. You were 20 then, weren't you? <laughs> well, his dad didn't mind. <laughs> Tight family. Well, again, you know, I, I'm banned from Little League. I, yeah. Uh, so I, I sit on laps or have people sit on laps for me. Uh, that's neither here nor there. And, uh Yeah. We're going to go with uh, the Mets winning the World Series in 1986. What was that? Because uh, the only game I went to that year, and I still remember it, uh, the Mets lost to Philly 7-1, to and it was in September. Uh, obviously, like my family couldn't afford fucking World Series tickets. But what was it like being at Shea Stadium for Game 7 of that? Because Game 6 was – just watch the clips on YouTube. Like, if anybody doesn't believe us, 
go and watch the clips on YouTube of what it was like in the crowd because nothing is like that today. So what was Game 7 like? So, like, um, I guess the best way I can explain it. First, um, my father actually won the tickets at work in a raffle. Um, and, um, so that, that's, that's how we cool. ended up, ended up going. Um, and from, you know, I, I was only like four years old, so I remember bits and pieces. I remember, um, uh, at the time, strawberry was like my favorite player. And I just kept like calling his name out only. I wasn't calling him strawberry. I was calling him cherry. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and it just was like anybody who's ever was ever in Shea Stadium, forget that it's ugly. That doesn't yeah. matter. When that place rocks, you feel yep. it, you know, and that's really what I remember, just the overall insanity. Because, you know, being a Met, you go to City Field now, you don't have that blue-collar every man, you know, like kind of, you know, this is the team in Queens. The Mets do not carry the same cachet that the, the Yankees have. So... But that's really what what I remember is just like just the place shaking. It's wow. So wild, you know. I think it even yeah. shook. And I w- I wish I was a little older. It shook the day that I saw them lose seven to one. I I vaguely remember that. Yeah, like it was being yeah, super. You know, I don't hot. know if the building was built to code or not, but you know, <laughs> it was pretty shitty. I, I won't lie. Yeah, <laughs> it is pretty shitty. Well, it was. Well, what was not shitty is. You so far in this game, man crush, because you're out to the lead three to two, uh, three to one rather. And we're heading into our final round, which is going to be the television round. All right. Uh, with that, I'm going to take my opportunity here to, uh, to defer. And, uh, let's start from the lowest. Let's go to the seventies and, uh, Mark, what do you got? All right. My TV selection, we're going to go over to the pages of the Cincinnati Inquirer, October 2nd, 1976, where a review for a new show reads, Never go into a TV series with preconceived notions. I should know that, but I figured Jack Klugman as a medical examiner in a coroner's office was too far-fetched. Who would believe that? So if you want to see how wrong I was, watch the 9.30 to 11 NBC Sunday mystery movie. As Quincy M.E., Klugman is good, the program is good, and it has a lot of those nifty ingredients that make good drama. I just couldn't imagine that sloppy Oscar Madison of The Odd Couple being sharp enough to solve some sticky murders. In this first Quincy, he breaks up a City Hall murder scandal in convincing style. So airing October 3rd, 1976, I give you Go Fight City Hall. To the death, the very first Quincy M.E. Uh, Like the article alluded to in this one, Quincy looks into the rape and murder of a civil servant and what he finds is a chain of murders and a political conspiracy that leads all the way to City Hall. So a total of 148 episodes were made about the determined medical examiner and L.A. City coroner uh, with the early seasons having Quincy actually solve the crime rather than the LAPD. And then in the later seasons, it kind of switched focus a little bit. And Quincy would would tackle more social issues, such as flaws in drunk driving laws, dumping hazardous waste, orphan drugs, the dangers of punk rock, and of course, anorexia. 
nominated for 10 Primetime Emmy Awards, including four Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series nominations for Jack Klugman. So if you're a fan of medical dramas, crime shows like Columbo and Matlock, and you're in the mood for some good cheesy fun, check out Quincy M.E. You can't go wrong with good old Jack Klugman. So uh, let's toss this one over to Joe Finley. Joe, what'd you bring for the television round? Well, crikey, friends, I bring you something pretty interesting. October 25th, 1996, a show that spanned six seasons, was actually the second longest uh, running show in the Discovery Communications Network of Channels. Uh, It had, what was it, 17 uh, specials. It had two spinoffs, and the man became just an utter legend prior to his death. Steve Irwin brings you The Crocodile Hunter. The very first episode aired on October 25th on Animal Planet. Uh, so Steve Irwin and his wife, uh, Terry, from the Australian National Zoo, uh, began this journey of crocodile hunting, as it were. And you were introduced to an animal expert who was a virtual madman. And it was just wonderful to watch and to see this guy, you know, deal with the crocodiles. We're going to get right in the cloaca there and really check it. <laughs> you know, it was just, he was something that nobody had ever seen before because somebody like Jack Hanna, who was kind of your go-to for, you know, any kind of animal expert was a very measured, you know, whatever. And this guy was, he was family friendly, but also at the same time was just an utter madman. And it just made everything. Uh, so I did say it was the second longest running program on the Discovery Network of channels there. Uh, Mythbusters being the str- the longest running of all time in there. Uh, it's two spinoffs, The Croc Files, which was a more kid-friendly version. It was built more around kids, the graphics and stuff like that. And then The Crocodile Hunter Diaries, was, which was actually a uh, reality show that was more about their lives and their and the lives of the people who worked at the Australian National Zoo. Uh, the specials spanned after the show had finished. He came out with a number of uh, sporadic specials just to kind of stay on the air up until his untimely death where he was stung by a ray. And still heartbreaking to this day, but uh, the Irwins still working hard in Australia for uh, animal preservation and all those different things. His daughter, Bindi, who in the Crocodile Hunter Diaries was born on that show, is now kind of the leading force uh, for all of that and has had her own shows in the meantime. Uh, The show also had, uh, they had their own movie, uh, a Crocodile Hunter movie that came out. It was weird and whatever but uh you know the guy is an icon and i miss him a lot and i miss those shows a lot but whenever i see something like that pop up i love to check him out again and just remind myself of what a lovable madman he was so october 25th 1996 the crocodile hunter debuts all right man crush why don't you wrap up this game with your selection for the television round all right, so let's go October 6, 1986 and uh, you could tell by mark's selection uh, we're getting outside of September, and we're beginning to lose out on some of the uh, the bigger shows that were debuting in September. That said, uh, by seeing Joe's pick, it doesn't entirely end when it comes to October. This this is kind of like Joe's pick a little bit. This show it isn't exactly what you'd expect for a debut. Especially in 1986, it's not something you'd get from the big three. It's not something that's only on syndication. 
So not quite as common in 1986, but it's a debut of a brand new cable show. And if you were anything like myself and my second grade friends, you totally wanted to be on the show. We wanted to be on the show so bad that my friends and I, we practiced nonstop. Matter of fact, we used to set up a homemade obstacle course at my friend Robbie's house and out into the woods in his backyard because it was kind of like sloped. And Robbie lived in this three-story townhouse. And I totally remember one particular obstacle course we devised because everyone got fucked up. And I was left with a sneaker full of blood at the end. I think it was probably a Saturday or some shit. But uh, in our infinite wisdom as uh, eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds, whatever the fuck we were, we thought it was a great idea. We'd set up this obstacle course and begin by jumping out Robbie's parents' bedroom window onto the second floor deck. And uh, from that point, you had the option to either slide down the stairs, which were steep as shit, on a plastic sled or jump off the side of the deck into a pile of leaves. And uh, I mean, keep in mind, we were timing each other doing this because you had to. We were practicing for the show. But uh, after you did that, uh, you also had to spin on a baseball bat. You know, the thing where you you put the bat on your head and you got to spin around 10 times. Well, uh, you did that. And before you finished the challenge by shooting his brother's homemade crossbow into a target on the the side of his shed. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, we're like, you know, probably like eight, nine, ten years old or whatever the fuck we were at the time. Uh, So my friend Dave, uh, he smashes his head on the bottom rail of the stairs because there was there was no way to hold on to the plastic sled, which we realized after we did it, uh, because if you did, you would just rip your fucking fingers off on the stairs so that that didn't work. So Dave goes down and he just slams into it. So at this point, Robbie was like, all right, well, I'm not going to go that route. So he jumps off the side of the deck into the pile of leaves and like twists his ankle because uh, what we didn't realize is the pile of leaves absolutely sucks and it doesn't really break your fall whatsoever. You just go straight through that shit right to the ground. So I'm going right after Robbie. So I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to go down the stairs because I want to keep my fingers and I want to smash my face. So I'll go into the pile of leaves. So I jump off and I go into the pile of leaves. It's probably like a 12 foot drop or so go in there. I actually land good. I stand up and just as I stand up, I get shot in the fucking leg with the crossbow. And I, I can, I still remember this day seeing my cousin Adam is like standing off to the side. He hadn't gone yet. He was the one doing the timing and he's just staring at me like, (laughs) like eyes wide open. And I knew at that point, shit was bad. Uh, and look, we this was a crossbow that his brother had made. And uh, they weren't real bows or real fucking uh, arrows, rather. They were sharpened sticks that we put in this thing. Yep. So basically what happened was Robbie went, he, he went off the thing. He did the spin, but he was so dizzy that when he was holding the crossbow and he went to shoot it, you know, like if you spin around 10 times, you're pretty fucked up, but you don't realize it. And he like he spun right towards me and shot this thing and hit me right in the calf, like went in probably like two inches into my calf, just blood fucking everywhere. 
But, I mean, that's the shit that you do. I mean, these are the things you did to get in shape for Double Dare. <laughs> like, you, like, everyone wanted to get in Double Dare, and this is what you needed to do. You needed to, you know, get your body hardened for Double Dare. So this was uh, Nickelodeon's first ever game show, and it debuted on October 6, 1986. And uh, it ran on and off for over 600 episodes between 1986 and 2019. And I'm going to wrap this up by saying, man, we fucking need Mark Summers as a guest judge on the son of a bitch. I agree. Hard agree. That would be fucking fantastic. But yeah, I still have the scar on my leg. (laughs) All right. Let's toss it down to Mr. Body, who will give us our final judgment here for the television round. Well, before I go through everything, I'm just a little curious there, Man Crush. How does any of that prepare you to find a orange flag up a giant nose? Well, you go really hard. So then when you get on the show, that shit's easy. Well, yeah. okay. Well, that's how you're going to win your, you know, your summer at summer camp, uh, space camp. And or, if you tell that you know, story uh, to the producers, you might get on the show. Or not, right. in our case. Well, on your mark, get set, go. All right, Harvey, tell them what they've won. All right. So what I'd like to do here is give this to Mark in the spirit of 76. But just God damn it, Mark, you can't fight City Hall. (laughs) Apparently Quincy can. Now, Joe, uh, definitely an impressive pick here. I mean, who doesn't remember the Crocodile Hunter? Um, And just big credit to the Discovery Channel for for giving us such a such an, an amazing person uh, as Steve. But unfortunately, the Crocodile Hunter, for everything that it gave us po- that was positive, it also gave us Bindi. <laughs> and she sucks. <laughs> she just had a baby of her own, much like how she, she was born on the TV show, like Joe said. It's amazing what, the, what they can do uh, on, on, uh, with trick cameras on television. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I feel like, uh, I, 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 I almost feel like, because the Mets won the World Series in 1986, <laughs> that it might just be my favorite year of the 80s. Uh, but honestly, Double Dare was just like such a huge part of, of my life in that, that whole like yeah. 86 to 91 era. Was that was the who didn't want to be on that show? So every except you know? for with your parents, I hated those episodes. Oh, yeah, super oh, slopper. Yeah, yeah. It's like nobody wants to go on with your parents. They always had like those, those like, uh, you know, started off with just double dare. Then it was family double dare. Then it was super sloppy double dare. I, I couldn't imagine that. Yeah, I'd be like, uh, can I just do this by myself? You know, honestly, like, if you think about it, you probably were like, all right, well, I got dad here, but my sister and my mom just suck. They're never <laughs> going to get that liquid into the, past that red line. We were all into that, though. You know what was the best though? Like when you knew that they like, they paired like these two kids together who just they weren't friends, they weren't related, they just happened to be on the lot that day, and you're just like you got that one kid who looks like he's probably the fastest kid in his class, and then he's got this stupid girl with him that can't do anything. <laughs> you know, you know exactly, exactly what I'm talking about. Anybody else who watched one of those game shows on Nickelodeon would watch Legends of the Hidden Temple or guts and be like that bitch is not finishing anywhere near first place <laughs> just throw him under the bus be like you suck <laughs> right there you suck like the the see the silver monkeys over there they're not winning shit and fucking jane in purple she's not scoring any points 
well, who did score a lot of points in this round, apparently was Man Crush. You know what? For the sake of the game, and I think this will be fun because I have an idea who you possibly could be, Mr. Body. Go ahead and give it a Joe and let's find out who you are. Let's let's go to the wild card round. Just see what happens. So you would you want me to put my identity on the line? No matter how many children it will I, I think I do. I think I do. I, I want you to give this to Joe. Let's go to wild card, and uh, we'll we'll figure out who you really are. All right. All right. So for wild card round, let's kick it over to Joe Finley first. Joe, what do you got for the wild card? Well, what the hell? Let's talk about it. This is actually a very interesting one because it's another music choice, and it was actually another metal band's second album, and it actually went to number three on the Billboard 200 behind Tool's Enema. Uh, this was from the band Korn. I give you Life is Peachy. Uh, featured singles like Twist, No Place to Hide, Adidas, All Day I Dream About Sex, and Wicked, which was an Ice Cube cover. Uh, it was it received a Grammy nomination for uh, Best Metal Performance, the one that Tool won. Uh, so, I mean, it was kind of like here, then here uh, for those two and a couple of bands that I listened to a shit ton of in high school. <laughs> so I give you Life is Peachy from the band Korn in 1996. And Man Crush, your final wild card offerings. All right, uh, let's go to October 17th, 1986. And just because I feel like this judge might be related to somebody we know. In one way <laughs> or another, I've decided to bring the movie Recruits to the wild card round. And here's a here's a little synopsis of this gem that would be right up that guy's alley if this was really him. And obviously... Is this Michael uh, Winslow's brother? <laughs> well, it's close. I mean, obviously, this is a total police academy clone, yet you get nudity in this one, and uh, it does have also an R rating. But here's a couple taglines from the movie, which are uh, fantastic. So this Canadian masterpiece gives you this first tagline. You've attended police academy. Now graduate to recruits. And then the other tagline they have, because multiple movies or one movie always has multiple taglines, right? Uh, you have the good news is the sheriff's cleaning the streets of thieves, hookers, and bums. The bad news is he's giving them badges, uniforms, and guns. So uh, here's <laughs> what the movie is about. Within, <laughs> within two weeks, Sergeant Hardbutt has to clean up crime in the streets before the governor arrives. Hardbutt is forced to supplement his overworked staff with civilian recruits who he schemes to use to his disastrous advantage. And I uh, throw this out there to you too, because I mentioned before that you could watch trick or treat for free on YouTube. This you can also watch for free on YouTube hour and 27 minutes long. Go check it out. It's the movie recruits, the Canadian classic. All right, Mr. Body, what is your very final verdict on this game? Well, you know, I, I feel somewhat bad, Joe, because, again, you, you chose a, a band that I'd, I just don't really listen to a, a whole a whole lot. <laughs> uh, but um, if you were to give me an enema, you might find some corn. <laughs> <laughs> On shoot. Now, uh, Man Crush, uh, it seems to me that you were uh, definitely uh, trying to smooth me. I don't, I don't think I was trying to smooth you. I was just trying to figure out who you are. Well, I don't I don't think that anybody really needs to know who I am. 
<laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't think they think they. Why would anybody care who I really am? Respect the man's identity. Do you want me to go with my backup wild card where uh, Seven Up was sold? Sure. Why not? I want to hear about this. How long is it going to take? All right. Now, <laughs> now I'm going to no. Now I'm going to give Mark three points, and then he can have his. Now he's going to wild card I, against you. I, I have a better. I have actually have a better question here. What? What is, what's actually on the line here? Like, what has to happen for me to give up my identity? <laughs> this was actually I don't know if you need to tell us. I think uh, depending on oh, your okay. selection, we'll, we'll we'll lean one way or another. Does like d- does Joe have to win for me? Like, yeah, let's see. Let's see how this goes. I, I won't throw out the seven up sold. I think that's a little bit too much Spanish fly for you. But go ahead. See, the thing I like about recruits is the cover. You know, it's a it's it's a, it's a good cover, and it's definitely and I like how it fought. You know, there's so many movies that follow like that that police academy fucking the the inmates are running the asylum kind of fucking more '80s parody. Which who doesn't love <laughs> that? And I'm sure that this ran on USA Up All Night at some. Oh, point. I didn't check that. I should have. That probably I could probably see that happening. I think I have a copy. Oh wait, you know what? There's a. Just... I'm looking at the poster now. There's a third tagline. Go ahead. Make their day. Oh God! So now, so they ripped off a totally different franchise for that one. You know, you gotta really like at, at the very least just to appreciate their their enthusiasm and their willingness to, uh, you know, not be original. <laughs> um, man, I don't know. Obviously, corn is the bigger thing here, but I mean, who the fuck gets to talk about recruits? <laughs> that doesn't happen too often, and I'm hoping that the audience at home might f- actually go out there and For watch free. it on YouTube. And then you know, next next day at work, they're just talking about recruits. Guys like talking about police academies. Like, nah, man, it's you got nudity. You fucking crew. Yeah, it's got nudity. All you get in fucking police academy one is Mahoney fucking looking in the shower. <laughs> oh man, don't know what to do here. This is so. Uh... You know what? I think I think I'm going to have to do the responsible thing here and give this to Man Crush with recruits. <laughs> <laughs> now I have no idea who you are. <laughs> responsible. We'll, we'll leave that one up to the people at home. We'll never know. We're never going to solve this mystery. It's a mystery. Yeah. Maybe we're going to have to call Quincy. Bo Beecraft? Quincy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, he's the Quincy of Quincy, oh. who also looks like the guy on the cover of the Night Moves album. Yes, he- <laughs> uh, it's supposed to be Bob Seger, but I think it's a young Bo Beecraft. So, <laughs> just saying. All right, well, I guess this means Man Crush picks up yet another victory. Congratulations, it's the headband. Uh, but Duelers, if you've missed an episode of our show, you can always go back on DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much everywhere podcasts are available. And then if if you just listen to the show on podcast format, you're missing so much. Go over to our YouTube. Here you'll actually be able to see Mr. Body and see if you can figure out his identity for yourself. Uh, but again, once again, I want to thank Mr. Body for showing up this week and uh, being our special guest judge. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. It was really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I, ho- I hope I didn't uh, fuck up your guys' flow too much. And uh, for those parents who are checking uh, to see if I live in their neighborhood, I do not. <laughs> You're not fucking up my flow, but you're messing up my cabbage patch. So... <laughs> 
All right, Joe Finley, let's toss it over to you. Why don't you tell everybody what's going on on Miscast Commentary? I tell you, I think I've made myself the busiest human being in the world because I've been doing a lot with Miscast Commentary. We've got some fun ones coming up. I actually have an interview with a former Dueling Decades judge, and I'll actually drop it on here. I didn't drop it on my own show, but Andrew Cassess oh, is nice. going to be talking about Revenge of the Nerds too with us. Ask him how much an Airbnb at the Hotel Coral Essex is. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. But uh, yeah, so in addition to that, I've been doing the whole Miscast Joe thing, doing my own thing. I'm literally swarmed right now with equipment and things that I have to review and I'm doing like all the tutorials and all that kind of thing. So I'm making myself a very busy man just in general, I think just to kind of hide my own sadness. Uh, but it's been uh, a blast coming back on here and doing this. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I got nothing else for you. <laughs> and we'll be back next week. Yes, we'll be yep. back next week with an all new episode. An all new, uh, an all new contestant. An all new contestant. Yeah, it's fantastic. Lots of great stuff happening here on Dueling Decades. Make sure you subscribe, give us a like, and a review. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard.